Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food and this week I'm digging deep into the construction of identity itself through food with multi-award winning Russian writer Anya von Bremsen. So many of the tropes and stereotypes of Spain, of Spanishness come from, you know, the flamenco, bullfighting, polka dots. And that was very much exploited by Franco, for instance, to boost his uh, tourism campaign. National Dish is her fascinating book exploring how culinary cultures become the cultural signifiers of France, Italy, Japan, Spain, Mexico and Turkey. Mixing academic rigour with chats at bars and cook-ups in local kitchens, she stirs up a load of our assumptions. It means so many things to so many different people. And I was specifically interested in national identity. But even that is so changeable and so mutable. And given what's happening in the world, uh, that on the one hand we have this extreme rampant globalization where you can have pizza in the Himalayas, um, and, and what not, and, and the burger and Samarkand. And at the same time, we have the rise of sometimes very toxic nationalism, uh, stoked by these populist dictators like Trump, Bolsonaro, Putin. So there's this very paradoxical situation and people can find themselves one day supporting globalization and another day, you know, waving their national flag. Um, when I embarked on it, I actually had no idea of how complex it will be and how many very fascinating but sometimes troubling rabbit holes I'll fall into while doing the research. Well, exactly. I mean, it it is an extraordinary time to be talking about these uh, issues. I mean, you started writing this before Ukraine. And as a Russian, uh, that's a really interesting question to ask about what is a national dish. And we will talk about that at, at the end. But, you know, we're talking a couple of days after the most horrifying news is coming out of Israel and Gaza, um, you know, a place which shares its food. Hummus Wars was an idea for a book I was going to write back in the early 90s. Exactly. Uh, it's been written by plenty of people since. Um, let's talk about intangible food heritage, first of all, versus the sort of construction of food identity. I mean, you quote Hobsbawm and others when you say the notion of a nation is historically a recent phenomenon, and it came from the Enlightenment period. Can we go back and have a little history? history lesson about the construction of food identity? Well, let's just start maybe with the construction of nations and nationalism. And there are different theories about it. Hobsbawm, Benedict Anderson, by no means are the definitive answers, but they hold that the idea of a nation is something that stems from the late Enlightenment uh, with the advent of uh, printed language uh, that was common. And... Um, sort of mass printing um, and so many other other phenomena. So basically, we're talking from the French Revolution and on. So we, in looking at foods, we assume that something like French food, Italian food, Japanese food existed since times immemorial, as long as the language existed. But think about it, there was no France as we know it. There was no Italy as we knew it. There was no Italy until 1860s. Japan was a collection of disparate islands with absolutely nothing to unify them. So first came the identity and the nation building. And then with it comes the food because it's an important attribute. 
It's much more important now than it might have been in the 19th century. But food like flag, like national anthems, a national dish um, is a very important idea in bringing people together and having them unite behind a certain dish like you had in France. And that leads to uh, an intangible food heritage, which is a UNESCO thing now. I mean, I've done a lot of work. Um, I wrote a book in 1998 about how Australian food at that time was constructed through waves of immigration from the Italians in the 50s to the Greeks in the 60s to the Vietnamese boat people in the 70s. And it was in their intangible food heritage that they brought with them. I talked to some Italians who talked about how they grew their own tomatoes in their camps before they'd even moved into cities like Melbourne. Food was so important to them that it gave them a sense of self and belonging. So that was really the main question, wasn't it? It was that juxtaposition of intangible food heritage and this construction of food identity that you really, well, took the opportunity to go around the world to explore. I mean, was that it? Well, even as you mentioned, for instance, the Italian immigrants, um, there is a theory that the in Italian national cuisine was really born in diaspora before it really took hold in Italy, which was a very much a you know collection of disparate languages, disparate food traditions, and how immigrants use nostalgia. Um, to construct these identities and nostalgia was for stuff that actually didn't exist because people immigrated from Italy uh, in the end of the 19th century because they had nothing to eat. It's not the bourgeoisie, it's not the wealthy who actually had good food. So you project things in nostalgia and you imagine things and these, uh, the, the imaginary, as I argue so often, uh, is sometimes more important than the real. I mean, who are we to separate what's what and who are we to tell people how they should feel? I mean, people often ask me about this book, did you come up with any answers? I said, no, because I just listened. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about me finding a home until that very last chapter on Ukraine. It was about me talking to people. And a lot of the stuff they said was just myths and repeating the same lies and whatever. But it's important to them. And uh, it means it's real. Well, exactly. And let's talk a little bit more about that that construction. Since you wrote that book, um, Alberto Grandi, the Marxist academic, uh, wrote that piece um, about gastro-nationalism. It's very much the same sort of thing as, as you're talking about. Um, again, he used Hobsbawm's idea of the invention of tradition. He did care, actually. <laughs> he kind of blew the whole idea of Italian uh, traditional food culture apart because he said it's based on lies and recipes dreamt up by conglomerates of food imported from America. You didn't feel that, did you? You went deeply into the traditions in each of these places. You looked at uh, how tradition makes people feel. That was the most important thing that you found, probably, wasn't it? No, I, I do agree with Grandi and I, I touch on it in my pizza and pasta yeah. chapter that, you know, the whole pizza margarita is an absolute myth and an absolute invention and full of fake lore um, and other things. You know, pasta is also not, you know, as we know, it is not that old. And uh, again, there was no Italy. So what are we talking about when we're talking about national dishes? He is much more provocative than I am because, again, I listened and I, I'll 
similarly, I said, so what if it's invented? Well, so what is that it is cultural capital, and that has made a lot of money for a lot of companies, and not necessarily for the people who live there. So, you know, the people I spoke to who were growing the tomatoes in the camps just outside Melbourne. I mean, they totally believed that tomatoes were an essential part of their being. Uh, the tomato manufacturers or the, the, you know, the Passata manufacturers have made a great deal of money out of that sense of belonging. You talk about authenticity, terroir and heritage as being commodities. With the diaspora, with the Italian diaspora, I mean, again, it helped rise the rise of national Italian cuisine abroad is how much companies from Italy and abroad were counting on consumer patriotism from the diaspora. Uh, it's, it's, it's so interesting now. Absolutely. There are so many players involved in these constructs and they are worth a lot of money, whether it's kimchi to Korea or high cuisine to Peru and, uh, talking about UNESCO, including food in its intangible cultural heritage index, they meant well. They kind of wanted to decolonize heritage, but it's been absolutely hijacked uh, by state players, private companies, because food is an important part of the national brand. So we have this neoliberal logic where everything is for sale, uh, where tourism uh, identity itself, where a country becomes a brand in the competitive global market. And it's, it's, it's a very upsetting situation, obviously, but it is what it is. And I just kind of look at it as an observer and I remind people that's, that that's how it plays out. Yeah. And, and it is idealized in many ways. You talk about the Mexican cappuccino cooking, the Japan's furusato, meaning old village, Italian slow food. These are important movements in that they do uh, paint a picture of a nation which produces a tourism industry. But it's, it's the question of how it makes the people who live there feel. And I'd like to take that idea and go into the for food moments. And your first is jamón in Spain. And I'm very aware of the culture of the pig uh, being central to Spanish identity at the very t same time as it is being industrialised right under their noses. Uh, it is being factory farmed. It is being stolen right from the centre of Spanish culture. Tell me why of all the different places you went to, you chose that as an example of the national dish. Well, it's one of the examples of national dishes. The whole premise of the Spanish chapter is me going to Seville, Sevilla, uh, which is the capital of Andalusia, which is the most sort of orientalized, if you will, regions of Spain, which is from where so many of the tropes and stereotypes of Spain, of Spanishness come from, you know, the flamenco, bullfighting, polka dots. And that was very much exploited by Franco, for instance, to boost his uh, tourism campaign, yeah. which was called Spain is different because we think Spain was a closed country, but Franco needed money in the 50s and 60s and he opened it up to international tourism. And that's where you get the Torre Molinos and the whole kind of beach tourism. And food, again, was important to it. And their campaign was basically based on one region, which is Andalusia. So I explore the tropes and stereotypes um, of how one region become, comes to stand for a country. And my goal, my meal in, the, in Seville is the tapa. Not just one dish, but the whole tapeo, the whole ritual of going from bar to bar, uh, eating small plates, um, drinking 
either canyas, small beers or wine. And, um, which is something, uh, Spain has put forth as, uh, a candidate for UNESCO intangible heritage as a lifestyle thing central to the Spanish identity. Of course, it's all quite recent because old people in Andalusia remember how they didn't go out, how they didn't have money. So this is really something that took off with the death of Franco, with Movida, uh, when Spanish society sort of lets itself loose from the dictatorship and people are going out and people have more money. And this is when shuffling from bar to bar becomes popular. And which brings us to jamón. What is Spain's most essential, most important tapa? One that really connects to identity. Um, and tapa, by the way, means lid. And a slice of ham was something that was apocryphally or for real served a uh, kind of plonked on top of a glass of beer or wine to protect it from flies or dust or whatever, you know, a piece of cheese or a slice of ham. And pig is absolutely central to Spanish identity. But why? For rather dark reasons, because remember the Inquisition? Yes. This is uh, so, yeah, so the, we, we get into this, this kind of dark stuff right away. Uh, so Spain expels its Jews. Uh, and it's Muslim. In, in 1492, uh, the, the, the fateful year that Columbus starts the whole kind of colonial project, uh, unwittingly or wittingly, uh, and it's, uh, expelling its Muslims gradually after that. So the only people who are remaining are converts, either conversos, uh, the Jew Jewish converts or converted Muslims. So the Inquisition wants to root out fake converts and insincere, you know, who are like not true Christians. And how do you do this? What is a, you know, eating? Because both Jews and Muslims don't eat pork. So, so pig, yeah, so pig becomes uh, the um, the way to, uh, to root because out. Because they would bring some pork with them into the to the Jewish homes to see how they react they would put burn some pork in in the fire you say to, to you know because these smells the the very presence of pork in in a Jewish home was forbidden and it would root them out yeah there, there are pages and pages of inquisition proceedings legal proceedings which are very chilling documents like weirdly banal you know going into every detail so like oh Juana goes to her neighbor and she sees the neighbor throw pork in the fire and she reports her you know she, she tells on her or you know some woman you know, held her nose when she saw bacon and based on that, you could be waterboarded or, or worse. Uh, so I mean, there you have this, like the whole dark, sinister aspect of the pig. I mean, it is sinister, but it's also really fascinating that um, the, the notion of food and belonging should be so uh, so deeply rooted in a Jewish person that they couldn't actually eat that. I mean, my husband's Jewish. He does. I, I can't remember the last time he ever went to a synagogue outside of Bar Mitzvah, but you know, he won't touch shellfish. I keep saying to him, "But you're not an observing Jew." That's so interesting. We, we, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Jew from the former Soviet Union, and in the Soviet Union, Jewishness was an ethno-national identity. It wasn't a religious identity. It was something that you had in your passport. You were like a Russian, a Ukrainian, a Tatar, a Jew. Um, we had no idea about 
the religious implications. So we ate pork and we loved it. And then when we immigrated, our Jewish sponsors, you were refugees, would come to our houses and they would see Christmas trees and they would see kolbasa and bacon and they would just go ballistic. And uh, I had no idea that it was part of religious identity. So it's all, it's all so fascinating. But at the same time, pig uh, to the Spanish is survival. You know, and I go to Cinco Jotes, which produces some of the best jamón in Spain, from jamón iberico, and uh, I talk to the carvers and to to people who work there what it means to them. And they say, Anya, you have to remember, in the farms we killed our pig in November, and that fed us for the rest of the year. Exactly. We would cure it. We would do you know every every part of the pig. So it was something for survival that became luxury these days, right? Exactly. And so that is where. The two arguments, I mean, there are so many arguments, but the two, the construction of identity and the intangible food heritage really do uh, coexist. Uh, the, the pig is very much the symbol of, of Spanish nationality still, because people still have that pig festival. The Matanza, yeah. In November, where they will, you know, the whole village will get together. And also jamón. Jamón is just such a part uh, it's, it's interesting because it's become very expensive, especially good jamón. Um, it's nothing that you eat every day, not jamón iberico. But as, as, uh, someone from Cinco Hotas tell me, tells me, Spanish are amazing. They go to a wedding and they don't discuss the bride's dress. They discuss what jamón was served. <laughs> there is a real, it's like a real national obsession. It is. It's not that you find these things funny. You find them extraordinary as, as the reader does. And it is full of these kind of little stories, which, you know, makes it incredibly light. It's a very, very deep subject, fascinating subject, but it is full of, of voice and people and traditions and, and crowds in the streets and people eating together. It's really, I loved it. I absolutely loved Thank it. Thank you. Let's go to Mexico for your second food moment, the secret of mole. How did mole become the recipe for Mexico's national identity? That's, again, so fascinating because we have these colonizers who come, uh, the Spanish, and they bring their culture and they kill a lot of indigenous people, like horrible, horrible stuff that's going on. And, um, but from there on, Mexico develops the identity, what they call mestizo, uh, right? The mestizaje uh, kind of ethnobiological fusion between, uh, Spanish colonizers and indigenous people. And after the revolution of uh, 1920s, it becomes Sp uh, Mexico's official identity. We're mestizos, you know, it's, just, it's what you write on your census. It's how you self-identify, right? So you're part white, part not. Um, and this mestizaje has been subjected to a lot of uh, deconstruction lately, especially after the Black Lives Movement. So there's more, you know, because it's leaning very white. Uh, it's, it was always at the expense of indigeneity. So mole with this whole, uh, incredible huge chest full of ingredients. I wouldn't even call it a stew. It's basically a sauce, uh, that base is based on many, many ingredients that are pounded together and cooked together and then served, uh, over some meat, whether it's turkey traditionally or some pork. And, and there are just countless versions of mole, green mole, black mole, red mole. But the official moles of Mexico are kind of this colonial, uh, very baroque construct. And the way it's been positioned in Mexican press by Mexico's intellectual thought that this dish 
is really representative of Mexican identity, of this mestizaje, of this biocultural fusion of Spanish and Amerindian traditions, because it's got so many ingredients. It's got Spanish sweet wheat rolls. It's got Mexican indigenous tortillas. It's got Arabic spices that came to uh, Spain from uh, from Al-Andalus. Uh, it has indigenous chilies. It has chicken broth or turkey stock. So it's this huge potful uh, of uh, incredible food, but also something that can be used um, in official discourse to describe what Mexican is. They call it Mexicanidad. Uh, as you know, there, there's a saying actually, as Mexican as mole, tan mexicana como el mole, which is Americans say as American as apple pie. So, in every respect, it stands for Mexican identity, but that identity has been changing. You quote at the end of the book, actually, Kwame Anthony Appiah, who says all cultural practices and objects are mobile. They like to spread and almost all are themselves creations of intermixture. And that's what I get from all your food moments, but, but particularly that mole. Because we don't have a stable food identity in Britain, we're really happy to paint our palette with all those different colours. I was at Borough Market yesterday and I just made a little reel for my Instagram and it was so full of the joys of all the food that we love from Tel Aviv to Lebanon, right next to each other, to Korea, to France, to Spain. We can't get enough of it. Do you get that sense of Britain being that kind of global melting pot? Oh, absolutely. I think I think you have essentialist food cultures, France, Italy, Spain, a lot of the Mediterranean, Asian as well. And you have the so-called melting pot paradigm, cultures that uh, adopted the melting pot which has come under under fire as well, you know. The, the, now we prefer the salad bowl metaphor, um, but the, you get the idea, which which was just sort of uh, accepted the multicultural model um, as as its own. So Germany is very much like that. Um, Canada, Australia, Australia, America. of course, America, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. you have these northern cultures, you know, a lot of uh, with the Protestant ethos that maybe not didn't have pride in their own cuisine, and people of a certain generation were embarrassed of their cuisine yeah. that uh, have. Um, sort of acknowledged the benefits of uh, immigrant cuisines. And then you have countries like Italy, which is still fighting with it. Exactly. Let's go into Istanbul, where you have literally a melting pot in your potluck dinner. Tell us about this food moment. Yes, the whole premise of the Istanbul chapter is to assemble all these different uh, identities that flourished under the Ottoman Empire, because Empires are multicultural. Nation states are homogenous and nationalistic. And Ottoman Empire, which spanned such a huge geographical, uh, geographical scope, you in Istanbul until the 1920s, it was mostly non-Muslim. So you had all these minorities, Greeks that were the main restaurateurs and wine tavern keepers, Jews, Armenians, Albanians. It was truly, truly uh, a melting pot. So my idea is to look at what happens when this melting pot culture of an empire where the word Turk 
barely existed. I mean, there was no so, no such identity, right? Uh, what happens to a cuisine of such an empire when it becomes an aggressively nationalistic nation state? And for that, I sort of go into this nostalgic moment and I go and speak to the survivors of all these communities, a lot of which have been ethnically cleansed or deported. Uh, Istanbul is really not what it was now. It's a multicultural city right now in a different way. There are all these Russians and uh, Syrian refugees, uh, but, but it's, it's very different. So I speak to Armenians and they told me, tell me, imply in their conversation the tragedies uh, of Armenians in Turkey. I speak to Greeks who were deported in the 50s and 60s or who were fled uh, because of political tensions. Jewish community, which is, is dwindling, um, and their language, Ladino, is dwindling. They've been there since the expulsion from Spain. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, 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 and now. The Judeo Spanish language. Exactly. Um, I speak to Albanians who are different Ottoman history. So the idea is to create this potluck for all these people to bring the dishes, but not just the dishes, but their histories and their memories. And it was a fascinating exercise because you realize what a different city it was. That, you know, Turkish was a minority language on the streets. In certain neighborhoods, like where I have my house, Greek was the dominant language. And it was very poignant because Istanbul is a city that is changing so rapidly. Uh, just every week there's something and people are very nostalgic. But at the same time, I'm examining the whole phenomenon of nostalgia for the imperial past. Because it's something, again, that stems from that neoliberal 90s when identities became commodities and all these identities that were repressed uh, in Ataturk's Turkey suddenly are coming back in a commodified form. So their foods became representative and they became something that you could sell. But you're actually living it at the same time. You're in your home. You're looking out over this beautiful view with your. As friends. I'm talking to you, yeah. As oh, I'm talking gosh, to you, yeah. There. There's a Bosphorus. Amazing. Yeah, there's a Bosphorus right in front of me. But, yeah. but there's this very sort of poignant bit where you are talking to your friend Gamzi and and your other friends, and you're talking about whether or not you you can stay in Turkey. Yeah, no, a lot of friends left. It's it's a, a very difficult. A place politically as so many other places so yeah it's uh and it's nothing is what it seems everything is complex but in this fascinating way that takes you into all these labyrinths um of identity construction and yes this this was the challenge and the reward of working on a book like this yeah absolutely it is absolutely beautifully summarized in that moment your fourth food moment is you go back to where you left where you came from which is very much part of your identity russia and you talk about the role of borscht in your identity and ukrainian identity why did you choose that as your fourth food moment well it's from the epilogue of the book and i kind of didn't choose the epilogue it chose itself i was actually going to end the book on doing a thanksgiving which is such a traditional american meal in my multicultural neighborhood and just see how all these immigrant people are internalizing uh, this American holiday, but then the war happened. Yeah. And suddenly, all these things that I've been researching on a kind of theoretical level as a journalist, interviewing others, it landed on my own dinner table with this just visceral, searingly tragic intensity because suddenly it made me reconsider who I was. And as it happened, 
a pot of my mother's borscht, which is a beet soup uh, that Ukrainians and Russians claim as their own, but that was really shared heritage, um, something that I ate every day almost as a child, something that every mother made in Russia, in Kazakhstan, in Ukraine. Um, so I was sitting in my fridge and I looked at the soup and I said, who does it really belong to? Because already from the 1940, from 2014, when Russia invaded Eastern Ukraine, there's been this arguments, this kind of nasty spats between Russia and Ukraine about, oh, Russia would just go on social media. Oh, borscht is Ardish. And Ukrainians became irate because they rightly can claim it as theirs. Um, and suddenly there's something that, that, you know, you eat every day that, that you don't even think about as part of your, uh, identity and your, your uh, personal memories becomes this heavily contested, uh, explosive, object of political fights as a country independent Ukraine is being pummeled and assaulted by Russia. So what I decided to do uh, as the last scene of the book is invite some Ukrainian friends. Well, actually the Russian, Armenian, Jewish, you know, mix, but they're from Kiev who haven't spoken to me since the war broke out. And I'm sort of fearful whether they even will speak to me again, because now we're in different political sides. I'm, I'm supposedly Russian. At least I'm someone who speaks Russian and has Pushkin on my bookshelves and, and they're affected by this war. So I'm trying to bring us together and eat borscht together again and just kind of ponder on how food brings us together, but how it also divides us there. You know, it's, it's, it's a sad ending to a book. Uh, I mean, I could have ended it on this moment of unity of, uh, let's eat each other's, let's eat some hummus and let's, let's eat some borscht. But as we know from political events recently, this is really not the case. And, and food is an instrument, uh, of division as well as, as, a, as a symbol of unity. And, um, this is just how it is. I mean, life, life is complicated. It is. Uh, but you do mention the Cook for Ukraine movements, uh, called different things around the world, but you, you do mention Alia Hercules, who's a friend of yours. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was one of many, many, many thousands of people who cooked up Bush as for hundreds of people, um, to raise money for Cook for U- Ukraine, but it wasn't just about raising money. It was about raising awareness. Exactly. So it becomes in the diaspora and, you know, for Ukrainians, it becomes a solidarity, this powerful solidarity symbol. Exactly. So yes, food, food can bring awareness and it can bring, create communities, whether virtual or real, but food can also divide. But also it was about, you know, when you mentioned solidarity, something like the Cook for Ukraine was something we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, you know, maybe it's because the Ukrainians are our, our near neighbors, or maybe they, you know, because they look like us, um, because we can feel it a little bit more. Uh, you know, it, it, we've eaten their food, perhaps they supply us with their foods for whatever reason. We really feel very moved by what's happening in Ukraine. It's, it's very near to us, but. What I wanted to do with Cook for Ukraine, and I remember writing to Elia, you know, immediately on that very first day and saying, can I put out a special episode of, of the podcast to remind people of what she had talked to me about? And it was about dignifying. It was looking beyond the rubble and bringing that 
those sunflowers back. It was about bringing back the colour. It was about bringing back that incredible intensity of colour in, in the bush and telling those stories again. And she said, absolutely. And so I started putting it out. And then very quickly, the, the Cook for Ukraine was bringing people into all sorts of village halls and community centres to to really taste Ukraine. So, you know, going back to finish off with that first question I asked you about that juxtaposition of intangible food heritage, which is so important to so many people around the world, and the construction of nationalism through food, do they come to the same thing? I think absolutely. And it's a sense of belonging that we all carry inside us. And it can change. As as my final uh, epilogue on Ukraine demonstrates, I don't want to be Russian anymore. I don't want to even speak Russian and think in Russian. Um, and what do I do with Borsh as part of my uh, own personal history? What I try to do is to actually to purge it from myself as my own as part of my history and seeing it from the Ukrainian perspective. And it really made me understand so much because I started reading in Ukrainian and kind of delving deep into this other culture that is so close to ours, but not ours and doesn't want to be, uh, doesn't want to have anything to do with us, uh, rightly so. So yes, that changing, that sense of belonging is uh, transactional. It can shift. Uh, but it's inside us and food is a huge part of it. Um, and, uh, it, it just makes it so fascinating again to, to have worked on this project. You, you, you do say that there are no nations in food, only geographies. What did you mean by that? I didn't say that actually someone in Istanbul, an Armenian writer in Istanbul, uh, said that. And it's a very powerful mantra. Uh, it kind of means that, uh, Borders are artificial, right? You know, and, and she meant precisely, you know, borders between like Armenia and Turkey, for instance. And if a bee uh, flies across uh, the constructed border, does the honey, is the honey Turkish or is the honey Armenian or is it Azerbaijan? You know, Azer- uh, that, that, that kind of idea. I think it's a very beautiful universalist idea, but the rise of nationalism and the whole sentiment of, you know, my hummus, my baklava, my borscht contradicts it. But both ideas are constructs, and they're important to the people um, who belong to these different schools of thought. I mean, all cuisine is fluid, adaptable, and yes, it's about intermixtures and interborrowings. But how we handle it politically is what's important. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review the podcast if you like it over on Apple Podcasts. And then you can head to my Substack to check out some of the photos from Anya's own album of the research for her book.